You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be in God's Word together as a church family. So, a reminder, we have kids' sermon notes. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, kids, but I we moved, which means this got um, temporarily misplaced in the move, but I got it back. So fill out the kids' sermon notes and then come find a treasure afterwards. Also, we have the kids' totes in the bag. And as I mentioned earlier, our uh, Restless Kids' room was waxed over this last week. And so we've put the Restless Kids' room in the hallway. There is a table and chairs, and we have the speaker uh, over there as well so you can hear the message. So if that serves you, feel free to, to use that. Well, as you can tell from the public reading of Scripture, oh, man. Pull up. I'm getting old and bald. Life's depressing. I'm just kidding. Um, as you can tell from public reading of Scripture, we're in Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if it seems like I'm saying that like every week for the last 20 weeks, it's because we have been in Sermon on the Mount for quite a while. Uh, of course, we've taken a break from time to time. Next week, we'll take another break when my friend Rob Chisholm from Northeast Philly is in town. Uh, his wife is from Kansas City, and every summer they go to Kansas City. And last summer he drove up, and he's driving up again from Kansas City to, to serve us. And I know that you'll be blessed by his preaching. Uh, Rob is a part of his church, is a part of our denomination. So I look forward to that next Sunday. Then after next Sunday, we'll take some time to look at the Lord's Prayer. Um, now, if you grew up Catholic like me, you recited this all the time. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so forth. We're going to look at that in great detail, actually. We'll spend three to four weeks really 
wanting to be instructed by Christ. Jesus says, hey, I want you to pray like this. What does this mean? What's the content? What's the purpose? And so we'll slow down to look at that. Um, I'm not sure there is a more recited prayer in history and good reason. So I'll be putting a spotlight that in the hopes that the Lord's Prayer will nurture your soul. And then hopefully for you individually and as a church, it propels us into a season of diligently praying. Uh, we want to not just be instructed intellectually, but we want to be moved to action. And so I'm hoping that the Lord's Prayer would do that. Um, as a companion to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, I want to give every household uh, this book. It's Enjoy Your Prayer Life by Michael Reeves. Now, it is thin. So kids, young adults, adults, y'all can take this and read it. You can read it slowly. Um, it is very good. It's, it's brief, but it's excellent. So I encourage you to grab one. It's free. So on your way out, um, they're on, it's on the table out there. Just, just grab one. I think in addition to going through the Lord's Prayer and you reading this, it's really going to, Lord willing, um, you'll be motivated to pray to your God in heaven in meaningful ways. Uh, so grab that on the way out. As it pertains to today, we'll be looking at giving and prayer, but not in the way you might expect. Uh, this thought occurred to me last night when I was pondering just the majesty and wonder of God as I was wrestling with this text. The question I was asking myself is, why does God call us, to get, call us to give? Why is he addressing it here? But in general, why does God call us to give? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50, which means he has all that he needs. There's nothing Sean Powers can give to God that he needs. Why are we called to pray? God knows what is in our hearts before a word is uttered out of the mouth. He knows what's going on in here and here before I say a word. That's why I'm called to pray. Perhaps, and I think we will see this in the weeks ahead, is that giving and prayer are a matter of the heart. Giving and prayer are about personal devotion and not about what God needs from you. It's really more about what you need from God. So I think you're going to see that as we talk about giving in prayer today more generally, but specifically as we begin to dial into prayer in the weeks ahead. Now, once again, the headings and divisions in our English Bibles do not serve us this morning. The header above Matthew 6.1 in the ESV is giving to the needy. So if you have an English Standard Version, you're going to see that heading. I, I barely touch on the implications of this heading because it's actually a sub point to the main point. Further, verses 5 and 6 could easily be placed with verses 1 to 4, which is what you saw this morning. As you can tell, the uninspired editors of the English Standard Version made a break between verses 4 and 5. On the one hand, I understand the logic, right? It's about prayer and leads right into the Lord's Prayer. But I hope to show you that Jesus uses the examples in verses 2 and 3 and then verse 4 and 5 in the same way. He's trying to lead you to the same conclusion. They belong together. The two issues, giving and prayer, belong together because they speak to the same issue, which is the root and the topic of today's message. Now, what is that root? What is that main topic? I'm going to pray, and we'll get into it. I want you to see, 
this morning from God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I need your help desperately this morning. I pray that these saints in front of me would be instructed by you through the power of the Holy Spirit in the reading and study of your word. And I pray, yes, for, for a change of mind if necessary, but a change of heart as well. We need Christ this morning desperately. We cannot exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees without Christ. So I pray that throughout this entire message, we would make a beeline to our Lord and Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if you know this, but any church member in good standing can pray and read Scripture on Sunday morning. Right? You just need to let me know, and I speak to you about the logistics and expectations. Right? We call this, uh, these, these moments... Called, we call it corporate prayer and the public reading of Scripture. When someone is new to publicly praying and reading, I often pull him aside, and I've said this many times, uh, you are praying to an audience of one. So what's my point when I give like this encouragement or exhortation? How is a person praying before an audience of one when he's before an audience of many? I provide this reminder because God is the only recipient of your prayer. However, I know there is a temptation for a corporate prayer to become performative, right? It's there. The concern becomes what other people think about uh, the person praying than what is being said to God. So what is going on underneath the hood? What is going on in the heart when a person strives to impress others instead of focusing on the Lord? Now I think there's multiple answers to the question, but at the heart, when you strive, when Sean Powers strives to impress you and not the Lord, Pride is at the root. When a person is consumed with pride, especially in a Christian context, like be really honest, we're in a church, Christian context. When pride is at the root, the concern is with an individual's achievement and not on the object of our prayer, namely the sovereign God of the universe. I see this battle between, let's call it, performative righteousness and God-centered righteousness. I see this battle in almost every aspect, at least the temptation to this, in almost every aspect of the church. Here's, here's one more example of where I see this, but I'm going to turn the mirror on myself. So God has called me to be a pastor, right? Uh, a pastor of this particular church. And one of my holy and essential responsibilities is to rightly divide the Word of God to you, 2 Timothy 2.15. Almost every Sunday I come prepared to preach to you. And I say almost every Sunday because there's some Sundays I know that I don't preach. But the Sundays I do preach, I come prepared and to preach to you from the Holy Scriptures. And every Sunday, including right now, I have to resist the temptation to be liked by you. I have to resist the temptation to want to be liked by you. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Every preacher needs to have like a degree of skill to rightly communicate the Word of God. If I don't have at least an ounce of skill, I kind of need to sit down, you know. But the real question is, what is the motive for preaching? Why do I do this? Is my motive to be liked by you and to hear compliments every Sunday? Encouragement's good. As Christians, we are to encourage one another, right? But what is my motive? If the motive is to be liked by you, then we're all in a whole lot of trouble. But if my motive is to be faithful to God, that is entirely different. many pastors preach with the motive of being, wanting to be liked. The contrast that I'm trying to show, and it's the same that our Lord points out today in our passage, is that there's a wrong way to practice your faith, and there's a right way to practice your faith. Jesus isn't concerned if you utter the exact right words when you pray, for example, in like a small group setting. Like your community group. Like, don't get me wrong, we will see a model from Jesus about how to pray in a few weeks, but Jesus is more concerned with what is going on in your heart. What motivates you to pray? What motivates you to, to say the words that you say when you pray? In your heart, are you motivated to impress others or are you motivated to honor and glorify God? Are you motivated? To, to not want to fail, not to be seen as a failure in front of other people? Or are you motivated out of a deep sense, I just want to worship God with my life? Are you concerned about the audience of five or 20 or 200 or 2,000 that is in front of you? Or are you concerned about the audience of one? To know how today's teaching fits into the Sermon on the Mount, we have to go back to chapter 5, verse 20. And I'm grateful that Rob um, was led to this as well, because this is exactly right. This is the passage that helps us to understand what's going on in today's text. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, you will never, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus preaches these words and then continues to give six biblical examples of how the Old Testament law were falsely preached. And as we've seen in the last six weeks, Jesus provides a correction. Here's the summary of these six teachings in Matthew 5. Jesus effectively says the Pharisees have been falsely telling you what it means to live rightly before God. But I say to you, this is what true righteousness looks like. And true righteousness is connected to Jesus. So in light of Matthew 5, I hope you see how today's passage is connected to the greater teaching narrative of Christ. But there's a difference between those six teachings and the teaching that we see today. Instead of correcting their teaching, Jesus today is correcting behavior. Like it's what you do, right? Giving is a behavior, right? Praying is a behavior. Now, before we look at these behavior, behavioral corrections, I want you to note in the text the object of these actions. 
in verse 1, Jesus says that your Father in heaven is the object of your affections and actions. In verse 4 and then in verse 6, Jesus repeats, uh, to whom we must set our gaze upon, a Father in heaven. If God the Father is the object of your affections and actions, I think it's helpful to understand your relationship to the Father. I mean, I don't want to stay here too long, but we talk a lot about God the Son, but not as much about God the Father. I know that if there is one person of the Trinity that is neglected to be taught over the other two, at least in my experience, it is God the Father. This is important because, as we will see today, it is the God the Father who rewards as we're going to see in two weeks, Jesus tells us to pray to who? Our Father in heaven. So how are we to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son and then the relationship between God the Father and His adopted sons and daughters? Now, theologically speaking, God is one essence and three persons. Like, if you want to boil down how do I explain the Trinity, it's that. God is one essence and three persons. That is the most basic explanation. In addition, God the Father primarily signifies the divine person who generates and is therefore in relation to the Son. I'm getting into the weeds here, but just for a moment. To be a father is to beget another who has the same nature. The Father begets the Son. And in a second sense, the name Father also designates the divine person to whom those adopted in Christ are related as children of God. Here is what I'm attempting to say. Jesus is the Son of God to the Father. And if you are in Christ, like let's just go back to Ephesians 1. If you are in Christ, then you are sons to the Father. The patriarchy is not a often maligned in our culture. But you got to see that the paternity of God the Father extends to those who are co-heirs in Christ. Christ, the Son of God. Again, the doctrine of God the Father has been understated in recent generations, which is why I'm taking this moment to explain the relationship dynamics going on in this passage and in your life. If I'm introducing to you new concepts for the first time, great. As it pertains to today, you need to know that Jesus desires your heart to be directed toward a heavenly father. Going like, what's the brass tacks? You just lost me in this whole essence and persons conversation. Bottom line, your heart needs to be directed toward God the Father when we pray and when you give. You direct your heart to the Father because you are united to the Son. Now, with this theological lesson in mind, let's now dial into the issue at hand. There's a wrong way to practice righteousness, and there's a right way to practice righteousness before your Heavenly Father. The wrong way is exposed with two different spiritual disciplines, which I've been talking about. Our Lord says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, in order to what? To be seen by them. Then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Again, that's the sub-point here to the main point. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, 
that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. In the first century, as with our century, practicing religion could become mechanical, like we just do for the sake of doing. People will practice religion just because they need to or they feel like they need to. However, the practice of giving in the first century was worse than mechanical. Like mechanical is like, I have set up my giving to the church um, online, and it just kind of happens, right? You know to write that check every month, every two weeks, every week, whatever. But what we see here is like, it's not just that it was mechanical. There's a lot of pride going on. Jews were giving to receive recognition from other people. Jesus calls these people then and now hypocrites. Now, why does Jesus call these types of people hypocrites? We, we tend to think that a hypocrite is someone who says or do, says they will or will not do something, and then they do the opposite. So like if I told you right now that I'm not going to eat chocolate tonight, it's not going to happen, I'm not going to do it, but then I proceed to go home and eat 20 Hershey bars, that would qualify me as a hypocrite. But in our passage, Jesus seems to broaden the definition of a hypocrite because presumably the Jews were instructed to give according to the law, right? And they were doing it. They were giving in the synagogues and in the streets. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus still call them a hypocrite? Well, Jesus knows that the real issue then and now is found in the heart. The hypocrisy is that the motive for giving was not to honor and obey God, but instead the Jews sought earthly recognition. They sounded the trumpets while they strutted down the streets. What Jesus is putting his finger upon is superficial, let's call it superficial Christianity which is wrought with hypocrisy. Superficial uh, Christianity is like termites in a tree. It slowly eats away at the wood, causing the tree to eventually rot. You know, I, I think the entire Sermon on the Mount is an indictment on American Christianity in general. I really do. I mean, like, what do we see in our days? What are pastors? Smooth communicators? And not shepherds? Not expositors? Or the Word of God? I mean, again, this temptation exists with good pastors as well, but the aim for many pastors is just to impress you. Again, it goes back to what I said, to, to get you to like me. I don't want to be friends. Don't get me wrong, but you see my point, right? What's the motive? Churches look more like rock concerts where the people of God are supposed to come together and align their hearts toward God. But what's really the motive behind it all? It's to entertain you. What I think is hypocritical is when a so-called worship service with the accompanying fog machine is designed to bring people in to entertain instead of directing hearts and minds toward the Word of God and toward God Himself. 
as with many Jews in the first century and many Christians today, the sinful goal is always, is always this, right? It's like, look at me, look at Sean Powers, and it's not, look at Christ. Man, guys, listen, there's so much nonsense, and I really want you to see that. I'm not saying we got it right here, we're perfect at Redemption Hill. I'm not saying that at all. At least we're acknowledging our warts, though, right? We acknowledge that we're sinners, and we are resisting the temptation to be like, look at me. Look at how I give. Here's my check. I'm going to put it right into the offering box, but I need 10 eyeballs on this first. We, we, the aim is always to have people be looking to Christ. Always. Jesus says that if your goal, if the goal of your faith is to have others look at you, acknowledge you, and praise you, then guess what? Guess what? You've received your reward. You've received it already. And as it pertains to the specific examples from Jesus, you give to this church for God. You give to the needy for the Lord. God sees what you give, and more importantly, He sees why you give. at the end of the day, he sees why you give. You give for an audience of one to the glory of the one true God. Here's the advice that Jesus gives about giving. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, He will reward you. As you've probably gathered by this time, 20 sermons in, Martin Lloyd-Jones has been my deceased friend speaking to me through this sermon series. He says this about verses 3 and 4, and I think it's really good. He says, Do not announce to others in any shape or form what you are doing. That's obvious from this text, he says. But this is less obvious do not even announce it to yourself. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's taking us a little deeper into our own hearts. Don't even announce it to yourself. He says that is difficult. It is not so difficult for some people not to announce it to others. I think that any man with any element of decency in him rather despises a man who advertises himself. This is all before social media, clearly. He says it is pathetic. It is so sad to see men advertising themselves. yes. But what is so difficult is not to pride yourself because you are not like that. You can despise that kind of thing and you can dismiss it. Yes, but if that leads you now to say to yourself, I thank God I am not like that, immediately you become a Pharisee. Like if you're doing the right thing and you see that other person, he's like, I'm not like that person. You become the Pharisee yourself. When you do not allow the right hand to know what the left hand is doing, then the left hand to know what the right hand is doing, you approach God in a much different way. You approach humbly. And you know what else? You give freely with open hands, realizing all that you have ultimately at the end of the day does not belong to you. It belongs to God. I mean, you can do a quick inventory of your checking and savings account, 401k, whatever stocks you got. If you think all that belongs to you, you are sorely mistaken. 
It belongs to the Lord. If you desire to give as an act of worship, you give because of who God is. Period. End of story. The second behavioral correction is praying. Jesus gives this observation to us. And when you pray, you must not like be the hypocrites. There's that word again, hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. I, I, I entitled this sermon, An Audience of One. The, ti- the second option of this title could have been, Christian, don't be a hypocrite, <laughs> right? That came in second place. But I wanted to put a positive spin on it, <laughs> an audience of one. But here's what I mean about that second um, option. When the words of your mouth proceed from your heart and the desire is to be seen by others, like when you pray and your desire is to be seen by others, you're not really praying. A performative act is taking place. Oh, you might sound reasonable, right? You might use big theological words. You might emotionally captivate your audience, but you are not praying. Why? Because prayer is always directed toward God the Father. Not to Sean Powers, not to your pastor, not to your your good friend, not to that person you're trying to impress. That prayer needs to be directed to God the Father. Like I said, we're going to look at prayer in more detail in the following weeks, but we need to get the heart right before looking at the content and purpose of prayer. Like how are we, let's, we can't even look at the content and purpose before we, we get what's going on in here right. Like why are we even approaching God in prayer? How is that even possible? And Jesus says, when you come to the God the Father in prayer, don't be a hypocrite. A way not to be a hypocrite is in some senses, just be yourself, right? Be yourself. What I mean by that is you, you do not need to act like somebody else when you come to God in prayer. I've seen this before, that you go to, you go to church A, right? And all the pastors pray the same way. They got the same tone. They use the same big words. And everyone up there who comes up after has got to pray the same way. Like, what's going on there? They're not praying to God. They're trying to act like the lead pastor or whoever. No. You approach God with all your baggage. You might stumble over your words like a toddler figuring out how to walk. But when you come to God with a pure heart, you see God, Matthew 5, 8. And you know what else? God sees you. One reason why it is not just the pastor who publicly prays in this church is that the pastor is not the only Christian in this church. I mean, do you gather what I'm saying there? It is good for multiple hearts and voices to lead the church in public prayer. I can reference Acts 1, Acts 4.31, Acts 12.12. And guess what? You're not gonna, you, you are not going to sound like Sean Powers or Rob Lane. You're not going to sound like them, and that's good. Yes, as elders, we want you to receive our instruction, right? Yes, as elders, we are indeed an example to the flock. But none of that should betray who God has created you to be. 
you are created in God's image, and you are to approach the throne of God the Father in prayer. If, if praying is performative for you, like whether you pray in front of church or in a small group, if it's performative, Jesus has the solution. Here we go. But when you pray, Jesus says, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, when Jesus says that, do your friends see you praying? Nope. Does your pastor see you praying? Nope. Your spouse? Nope. I want to be clear about the point of verse 6. Jesus isn't saying you should not pray in public. There are plenty of scriptures that I can point to you about public prayer mentioned three from the book of Acts. Jesus, once again, is simply going after your heart. Jesus wants you to understand that motives matter. Why you do what you do matters. So here's some advice. When you are 100% comfortable in praying in that closet, not 99%, but 100%, when you're 100% comfortable in praying in that closet, then maybe praying before others is a good idea. Got to get your heart right before God. Also notice the focus of Christ on the private Christian life. You are to give and pray in secret. Now, why is that? I think Christ focuses on what is done in secret because he knows, and we need to know, that Christian piety, which means walking in holiness, is developed and strengthened when no one else is looking. The way to strengthen your prayer muscle is to not only pray on Sunday morning, but it's when you pray between Monday and Saturday. Like there was, there was a time frame. Here's an example of the point I'm trying to make. There was a time frame when I ran four to five days a week. Uh, difficult to imagine, I understand. I was not running, that's generous. It's more like a fast-paced walk. But I was doing it, right? And I signed up for a few half marathons, and I prepared for them. Everyone who runs remembers the day of the marathon. I'll never forget when I survived my first half marathon in Stillwater, Minnesota. The course was hilly. The sun was hot. And at the end were my wife and kids, and they were cheering me on. I'll never forget that. It was awesome. But what they did not see was the four months of dedicated running leading up to the half marathon. Here's the point. When cultivating a relationship with God, what you do in private matters more than what you do in public. What you do in private shapes what you do in public and why you do what you do in public. And parenting is another excellent example of the principle of this passage. I can observe great Christian parenting in public. I've seen it all the time. I've seen bad, I've seen good. Let's say I've seen good. Parents can seem to be engaged on top of caring for the kids. But here's the convicting question. Is what is done in public map on to what is done in private? Is there consistency? If there is no consistency, I'm telling you, parents will raise kids who will see the hypocrisy. So where does this, I think, true, true Christian piety lead us? It might be odd to hear, but Jesus says that a heart motivated by a devotion to the Father will be rewarded. 
what Jesus says about rewards is strange for some Christians here. Whenever there are rewards or trophies, there seems to be levels of like Christian piety or holiness. So what's going on? It's like, you know, like a sports team, right? You got a sports team, they play in a weekend tournament, and there's a first place trophy, and there's a second place trophy, and a third place trophy, then all these people don't get trophies. I guess these days everyone gets their participation trophy, but whatever. What are we seeing here? Are not all equally made in God's image? And are not all sons of the Father viewed equally because of the righteousness of Christ? The answer is yes, but there is more going on than what our English translations can make clear. In this passage, the Greek word for reward comes up five times. Five times. Whenever the word reward is connected to the temporal, earthly compensation is in view. For example, if I work 40 hours a week, I'm compensated for a wage. When Jesus says to the hypocrites that they have received their reward for their public demonstrations of giving and prayer, he is saying they have received their earthly due and they will receive no more. The people may compensate with an earthly reward, but God the Father will not honor shallow and graceless acts of alleged faith. That's simply verse 1. God the Father does not honor or reward hypocrisy. The other Greek word translated as reward is in verse 4 and verse 6. Both times the reward is given by God the Father. Now, I must ask, what is the difference between the two Greek words being used? Right? There has to be a discernible reason. The gospel writer Matthew clearly wants us to see a distinction. The sense we are to see is that we are not to expect earthly rewards for acting like a Christian. Right? We're not to expect earthly rewards for simply following Jesus. No, there are heavenly rewards that await you. And these rewards are given to you by God. So, here's the question. Would you rather receive that pat on the back for saying that nice prayer or be rewarded by God himself? If this teaching from our Lord does nothing else, it helps keep your life in proper perspective. It keeps your giving in proper perspective. It keeps your prayer in proper perspective. Now, I need to go back quickly um, to the verse that I think this entire sermon is, hinges upon. It's Matthew 5, 20. Once again, let's look at that one more time. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, ever, 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 ever enter the kingdom of heaven. I added those evers. What kind of righteousness do the Pharisees demonstrate? Now we can ask that question in light of what we read, what we read in Matthew 5.20. What kind of righteousness did the Pharisees demonstrate? They demonstrated a righteousness that was reliant upon the self. I understand that the word Pharisees is not mentioned in this passage, but I still think Jesus has them in their crosshairs. I don't think he's forgotten about them. Jesus pointing out that entrance into the kingdom of heaven cannot be obtained by your good works. Admission into the kingdom of heaven cannot be obtained by acting righteous before other people. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is solely based upon the mercy and grace of God. 
The daunting question that pops up in the Sermon on the Mount is how can a person become more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, right? How is it that your giving and prayer are acceptable to God? The answer is, left to yourself, you can't become more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. Left to yourself, you're just acting in the same way. You need to be credited with the righteousness of Christ. The way to become more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees is for you to be declared righteous by God. I can't make that declaration. Your friend can't make that declaration over you. God makes that declaration over you. Here are two passages to help you understand the righteousness of Christ. The first is from 2 Corinthians 5. We read read this, for our sake, he, God, God the Father, made him to be sin, him being Jesus, who knew no sin, so Jesus, the perfect, sinless Savior, so that in him, we, you, Christian, we might become the righteousness of God. And here's Romans 5, which helps connect a few more theological dots. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation of all men, that one trespass being Adam going back to Genesis 3, so that one act of righteousness leads to the justification. So we got that one act of unrighteousness, Adam, sin, entered the world. We got one act of righteousness by, by Christ himself. For as many... For as by the one man's disobedience that we were made sinners, so that by one man's obedience that many will be made righteous. All God's people have been credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ and are therefore positionally perfect before God the Father. Are you still a sinner? Yup. Is Sean Powers still a struggling saint who sins? Yup. But is the righteousness of Christ more powerful than my sin and yours? Yup. You, therefore, Christian, are not an object of God's wrath but you are, of an, are an object of his joy and his reward. And there will be no greater reward than to stand before Christ in all of his glory. Like, when we think about rewards, we think very tangible things. Give me the money, give me the gold, give me the silver, right? All that. All that's going to be meaningless. When you see your Savior face-to-face, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And you worship your Savior and Lord freely. You worship by singing. You worship by praying. You worship when you give to God. You worship when you care for the poor and needy. You worship God in your vocation. You worship God by reading the Bible. You worship God with every fiber of your body. If someone sees the way you worship God, great. Guess what? You're being salt and light. If someone sees that, they're like, whoa, that's different. You're being salt and light. Suppose no one sees the ways in which you worship. Great. Guess who sees it, though? 
your Father who is in heaven, he sees it. He sees it all. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.